Jesus' name, amen. John baptized with water, but you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. You have received power because the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And today you can see we're doing something a little bit different and fun. We're broadcasting live from our Bettendorf campus. It's not the uh, first time we've done this, but it's been a long time since we've actually broadcast the entire message from the Bettendorf location. And, and this may be debated as much as the lunar landing, but I'm actually here. And it's pretty cool that I can stand in front of my brothers and sisters at Rock Island just a matter of 20 minutes ago, do a welcome, give some announcements, and then with the help of some technology and a quick trip across the river, be here and we can stay connected as a church family as we dig into God's Word. Because we are one church in multiple locations. And this is an opportunity to build our unity and to position ourselves so that more people can know Jesus. I'm glad you're here. This is the final week of our Acts Church on Fire series, and it's been a great journey. I've loved hearing stories of how God has been working in people's hearts and lives and fanning flames into fire, and I never get tired of hearing how God's working among his people. Absolutely love it. And if you missed any part of that journey, you can go to heritageqc.com, and you can click the media tab, and you can see the entire series. But one of the foundational realities through the course of this journey has been that it is the Holy Spirit that sets the church on fire. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers the church. And when Jesus said that we would do what he has done and do even greater things, it's because he has gone to the Father and he has sent the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he did to help us understand how all of that would happen is he made a statement that's captured in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I just want to go back to it. It's been a foundational verse for us this entire journey. But here it is right here, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power. You will receive power. You'll receive what? Power. Oh, now, come on. you receive what? Power. Power. Dunamis power, the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on us, we receive the power of, that he gives, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is available to us so that we will be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is kind of like a who, what, when, where, and why as we look at the book of Acts and the gospel as a whole. And as we take a moment to do a little bit of a review, we're going to be reminded again that this receiving of power is a key fundamental thing. That we receive power to be his witnesses. We receive his power to be his ambassadors. We receive his power to be his representatives. And one of the most essential parts of that power piece, and we've looked at this before, is to understand that God does not impart his power for our purpose. 
When we look at this power, one of the most common mistakes in the spiritual journey is to live in a manner that that power is for something it's really not, that it's for our purposes. In fact, your first fill in your sermon note guide goes back to a principle we looked at early on in our journey that God does not provide his power for your purpose. God doesn't provide his power for your purpose. He provides his power for things far more greater than just our purposes. In fact, we've been looking at a diagram, using a diagram to help us understand this concept a little bit more. And and I want to step back into it because it starts out looking like this. And the reality is that we all have this deep longing to connect with God. We have a hunger in our hearts to connect with him, to know him. But because of sin in our life, we can't. There's a gap between us and a holy God. But the good news is that we don't have to stay in a place yearning to know God. We actually can know God because he sent Jesus Christ to live and die and rise again to pay the penalty for our sin so that this spiritual gap can be crossed with Jesus as the bridge and we can know Creator God and know him as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. And we profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. That Holy Spirit power comes upon us. We receive that power. And and we also, we experience salvation, but it's not just to be saved that we receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We're saved, but then also sent. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit is not just about our salvation. It's about our empowerment to live out the mission and the task, because there are other people who need to know Jesus. But there are other gaps. It's what we call our second gap. There's a second gap in this world. There's relationship gap, religion gap, religious gap, gender gap, race gap. There's all kinds of gaps between us and other people. And our task as a sent people is to build bridges over that gap so that those people can make their own choice to cross this spiritual bridge and find a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is our task. This is why we're still here. And I hope you know this. I hope you can draw it. But again, I hope more importantly, you're living this out. I hope you're living out the reality of what your identity is in him and who he has called you to be. Because the reality is that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for those who know Jesus. And until we care more about others than our own comfort, we're out of step with the heart of God. He has left us here to pursue others. And one of the other realities we saw in our journey is that our pursuit of others reflects our pursuit of him. When we pursue others, when we love and serve others, it reveals that we love and serve him. when, When we follow Jesus, we should be pursuing the things that he cares about and the things that he loves. And our attitude towards those around us reflects the level of intimacy we have with Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save all people. And if Jesus has a burning desire to see more people come into relationship with, through him with God, then so should we. And if we follow Jesus, but we don't have a burden or concern for others, especially those on the other side of the second gap, then something is wrong. Something's wrong because the Holy Spirit longs for people who are far from God to come to God. And the Holy Spirit longs for a people to be ready to be empowered and empowered and empowered to be the ambassadors. That's why we looked last week at the reality that God always uses people who are ready for more. God always uses people who are ready for more, ready for more of his power, ready for more of his authority, ready for more of his purpose, ready for more of his glory. 
as we chase after him, as we partner with him, as we pray to him, willing to sacrifice for the greater purpose that he has. And that second diagram thing for us, it captures the heart of what we're talking about. This diagram captures the reality that we are saved and sent. That if you know him already, then you are positioned to go and build bridges over the second gap so that others can know him. If you don't yet know him, then you're positioned to make that choice to no longer be spiritually unresolved, but to cross the bridge of Jesus into relationship with God. But we, as a church, are positioned in what we can call second gap ministries, that bridge building ministry. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we're strategically repositioning Vita Nueva into the Florisante neighborhood and establishing the Esperanza Center. That investment, those investments, that's second gap ministry. We're building bridges. And I got to tell you, the retrofit process and the preparation and preparing Vita to make that move, it's going incredibly well. And I'm excited to tell you that we've got a target launch date. We've set it out there. We're working hard to meet it. But it is September 27th. September 27th is the date that we're shooting to launch and open Esperanza Center, have worship services with Vita down in that facility on that Sunday. We're working hard for it and ask you to continue to pray. And for those of you that have contributed towards that process financially, thank you. We're well on our way to that $450,000 goal. We're not quite there yet. So if you've been hanging back, waiting to see how's this project going, is it really going to happen before you leaned in and partnered financially, now's the time to lean in so that we can finish this retrofit and launch on the 27th and invest in that second gap ministry in a place that is marked by darkness, a place that needs Jesus, marked by oppression. That's second gap ministry. When we're talking about partnering in West Davenport with a school, we're talking about second gap ministry. Actually, the school is Jefferson Elementary. For those of you that heard other things or been along the conversation uh, to this point, I just want you to know we have locked in that it is Jefferson Elementary, which is a school that is one of the lowest performing schools in the state of Iowa. It's also in one of the hardest hit areas by poverty in West Davenport, a place where there are plenty of opportunities for the church to be the church, and God's positioning us to do that. And I'm excited to see how he's going to allow us to love and serve in that neighborhood and in that community and the students in that school. And we'll have more information to come, especially over the next few weeks. But the reality is that God is positioning us as a church to send and move the church into new places, to build bridges, second gap ministry, to love and serve people in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. It's our task. But it's not an easy task. It's a messy task. And it's costly. And it comes with a fight. And it's not for the faint of heart. But it is worth it. It is worth it because the impact rings and ripples into eternity. It's worth it now, and it was worth it back when the first century church was birthed. We see some of the same realities of Second Gap Ministries and what we've been looking at as we've watched and studied those early years of that, of that first century church, the New Testament church. That Jesus came, he, he died, he rose again, he offered salvation, and then he sent his disciples to go build bridges. But they encountered opposition, and they encountered persecution, and they encountered hardship. Yet the church still was able to advance. But the thing is, second gap work always comes with a degree of trouble. 
second gap work always comes with a degree of trouble. Now, that may not be what you think initially when you talk about, okay, if I follow Jesus, what's the next thing? <laughs> but when you follow Jesus, you're going to encounter drama. It, it's what happens. We do. And the early church encountered great opposition, but in the midst of that, the gospel advanced. And I've been surprised how many things in my life haven't worked out like I expected. And I think we can all, at some point or another, relate to having an expectation that isn't met. It reminds me of the young woman who woke up one morning, turned to her husband and said, Honey, I just had a dream that you gave me a pearl necklace at our dinner date tonight. What do you think that means? He paused and very lovingly said, You'll find out tonight. So all day long, she's excited. She couldn't wait to go to dinner. She got all dressed up. They got to dinner. They ate their meal. They're all moving through the whole process. And finally, finally, he reached into his coat. He pulled out a box, put it on the table, and slid it across to her. She was beside herself. She was so excited. She grabbed the box, opened it up, and she was stunned to see a book about the meaning of dreams. <laughs> Sometimes we don't get what we expect in the physical world and in the spiritual world. And sometimes we have this thing where we, we have expectations for what God will do in our life, how he's going to function and how he's going to move. And most of the time we tend to think that if we believe and obey, then that everything's going to work out and there's no more problems in life, no trouble. That if we obey, we have success. But listen, God uses our obedience for far more than our success. He uses it for his glory. He uses it for more than the things that we make priority of or for our own comfort. He uses it for his glory to advance his kingdom, yet we can get caught in a pattern of wanting God and his power and, and life to all line up to serve us, to be about us, and to, to meet our purposes. And when that happens, then we don't get what we expect. Even the early church encountered great opposition. Even in their obedience, they encountered opposition. In fact, let's take a look at it. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12. This part of Scripture happens after God establishes the gospel for all people. He says it's for everyone, and, and he uses Peter and Cornelius, as we looked last week, to, to position the gospel through a second bridge or second gap bridge building moment to say the life-saving reality and the life that comes through Jesus is available to all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And then in, in this next section... What follows that obedience, what follows that extension of the gospel is more trouble. More trouble. Let's take a look at it, starting at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after, Passover, after the Passover, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, there is more than one Herod in Scripture, and this is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great who ordered the death of the babies in Bethlehem hoping to stop the coming of the Messiah. He's also related to some folks who were involved in the death of John the Baptist. And so Herod Agrippa I's relatives were trouble. <laughs> but so was he. 
We just read he had James killed. And he had Peter imprisoned, really just to impress the Jews. But there is a great moment that comes after verse 5, and I encourage you to read the rest of the chapter later, that as the people of God pray, the power of prayer is demonstrated, and Peter is miraculously freed from really high security. But then there's this reality still for me that the, the trouble piece remains. That in the midst of obedience, in the midst of the moving of God, there's still trouble. But again, second gap work always comes with a degree of trouble. Always. And I'm not making this up, and I'm not exaggerating it. If you've, ever, if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus himself talked about this in John 16. He said this, verse 33. He said, in this world you will have trouble. That word for trouble can be translated tribulation, persecution, burden, affliction. He says, you will have trouble. But then he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, look, you're going to have trouble, but listen, you can prevail. You can have victory because he had victory. And I hope you never doubt that. No matter what you're facing, I hope you understand that, that in the midst of that trouble, you can prevail, you can overcome, you can have victory because he did. Never doubt that. Never forget that. The problem is, I think, even though we may wrap our head around that, we don't live it because we miss two realities. Two realities. The first is simply this, that overcoming is not simply the removal of suffering. Overcoming is not simply the removal of suffering, but rather the manifestation of his power in it. I think far too often people think, you know what, if the trouble just goes away, if the suffering just leaves, then everything's going to be okay. However, listen, kingdom success, true kingdom success is not the absence of trouble, but God's power revealed in the midst of it. See, we see this most clearly in Jesus' life. See, Jesus suffered in this world. He endured ridicule, false accusation, physical pain, even death, yet he overcame. Not because the suffering was removed, but because the power of God demonstrated in it. Overcoming is not simply the removal of suffering, but the manifestation of his power in it. My friends, don't be surprised when opposition arises. Don't be surprised when things get difficult. Not only is it an inherent part of kingdom work, but the second reality is that whenever we engage in the things of God, we have an enemy who seeks to stop it, who wants to disrupt the things of God. We have opposition in the spiritual world. There is someone who seeks to make sure we don't live life to the full. And it's not because they care about us. They could not care less about us. They hate God. We know them by different names, Lucifer, Satan, the devil. But the reality is, he's an enemy of God. And his main objective is to hurt the heart of God. And since he cannot destroy God, he seeks to destroy what God loves. He seeks to destroy the relationship and trust that we have in God. He cannot defeat God, so he's unleashed his hatred for God on us. Creation. He seeks to destroy God's creation, you and me. Which is why Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, which he encounters in Acts 19. He says this later in Ephesians 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground 
And after you have done everything, to stand. Whatever you're facing, you and I, we stand firm in the power of God. And we're going to look a little bit more at that in a moment. But it's also important to move beyond simply knowing there is a spiritual battle and understand a little bit about how it works. Especially because as we talk about being a church on fire, as we talk about uh, the church mobilizing and building bridges over the second gap, we cannot expect to have this conversation about being a church on fire and think that Satan's going to sit idly back and do nothing. No, he's not going to do that. A church on fire, one that is building bridges, is a church in a battle. And it's a spiritual battle. So let me clarify just a couple things before we go further. I want to unpack something we've talked about before as a family about a year ago. I'm not talking about demon possession in this. That is a very real thing, but a very different thing. What I want to talk about here is a pattern that Satan uses to mess with people. Those who follow Jesus and those who are thinking about following Jesus. It's a pattern that he uses to derail the things of God. Because Satan has no power to control those who follow Jesus. None. He doesn't know our thoughts, doesn't control our minds. But we can give him influence. We can give him influence in our life that he doesn't inherently have because of the power of Jesus in our life. So here's what he does have, though. He has an understanding of human behavior. He knows how we work. He's seen it. He knows how to trick us. And, and Jesus describes him as a liar and the father of lies, and he knows how to distract us and trip us up. And here's how he does it. He starts by using what we call the D's. The D's. The D's are doubt, discouragement, despair, distraction, delay, deception. We could keep running that list for a while. But how Satan works is he allows circumstances and things in life where he starts to be the father of lies and he allows D's to start to hit us. That doubt, that discouragement, that despair. But that's not where it stops. His goal is not to just keep us in a place of doubt or to get us discouraged. His goal is to move us into one of three locations. It's either to move us into a place of isolation into a place of fear, or into a place of victim mentality. Into a place of isolation. There's a very different thing between isolation and solitude. Solitude is where we pull away from the busyness of life and people when we chase after God. Isolation is where we pull away from healthy relationship and connection. Isolation is where we say, you know what, we're better off on our own. I don't need, I am better by myself, and we pull away. Isolation is a place of vulnerability. Now, there is a place for fear in our life, but it's holy, reverent fear, and that's not what this means here. This fear in this space is talking about the fear of worry and anxiety. It's an unhealthy fear. It's afraid of what's going to happen, and there is no, there is no place for fear in the life of a believer. But if Satan can use doubt or discouragement or despair to move us into fear, he will. I acknowledged last week in my sermon that, that I had fallen into this as I was coming back from my vacation. But it's not just those two. He actually wants to move us to a place of victim mentality as well. And this is not victimization. Many of us have been the victims of something. And it breaks my heart to hear the stories and the moments of people's lives where they have been victimized. And it happens in this fallen world. And it breaks God's heart. But what I'm talking about here is victim mentality. Not, a, not the fact that we've been a victim. It's the idea that... that we don't get what we deserve and we should have better and, and that we are some kind of victim to the things that are happening around us rather than who we really are in Jesus Christ. So here's where this starts to take shape. His goal is to use a D to push us into one of these three places, but that's not the end. He actually wants to run us through the circle. 
keep us out running through all three. So it works this way, that if I'm alone, I'm isolated, I'm alone, well, I'm a fearful what's going to happen to me that I might become a victim. If I'm uh, afraid of something, well, now I'm going to pull away from community because I can get hurt again because I've been hurt before. I'm afraid I'm going to pull away so I don't have another problem with other people, and now I'm even more isolated, and I consider myself to be a greater victim. And it doesn't matter where you start in this. He just wants to push you and push you and push you and run you in that circle. And if you take this circle and you turn it horizontally, his goal is not to keep us in this movement, but to actually create a spiral of isolation and fear and victim mentality, of doubt, discouragement, and despair that continues to spin and turn and go down and down and down until we get to death. Because his ultimate play is death. It's suicide. Because if he can get the creation to kill the image of the creator, that's the best he can do. If you track anybody who has struggled with suicide, track back their journey, you will find isolation and fear, victim mentality, and, and hints of the Ds. Because this is the tactic of the enemy. It can seem really noble to say, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to be strong on my own. It can seem really noble to say, you know, I'm just being careful of what could happen. Or, you know what, I'm being protective of the things that are important to me. But you know what, this whole cycle is self-focused. It is not Christ-focused at all. It focuses on us, it pulls our eyes off of Jesus, it puts our eyes on us, and it makes us vulnerable to what the enemy will seek to do in our life. And if you're in the middle of this right now, I want you to know you can get out of it. But it's not by behavior. It's not by choosing to, to do something a certain way in your behavior. It's by truth. The way we counter the lies is truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the word of God is truth. When Jesus was in the, de in the desert and he was tempted, he, counted, he countered every temptation from Satan with what? Scripture. The Son of God used Scripture to counter the temptations that were being offered to him. And you and I, when we get into this cycle, the way out of it is to grab a hold of truth, to grab a hold of Scripture. And if you're not familiar with how the enemy works this, or you don't know the Scriptures to come out of this cycle, you are more vulnerable and more likely to fall into this. So let me just give you three examples of Scripture for, for what you can step into as you seek to stand firm and after everything stand. When it comes to isolation, Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The words of God. You are not alone. Jesus said in, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he said, look, uh, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Okay? We are not alone. He is with us. When it comes to this fear piece, 2 Timothy 1, 7, you have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. Not a spirit of fear. When it comes to this victim mentality reality, Lean into Romans chapter 8. Start in verse 28. Understand that we are more than conquerors. I realize bad things happen to us. We get victimized. We have hurts. We have pains. But that does not define our identity. Our identity is in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are more than conquerors no matter what we face. And that victim mentality has no place. Listen. See it for what it is. Understand what we're facing. We... He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we can counter the lie with truth, and that leads us out. Understand what the drama of life is. It, it, we often label it just people drama, but it's not people. I mean, people can be dramatic, yes. 
The enemy is at work seeking to disrupt the things of God. And when we don't understand this, we're more vulnerable to it. When we don't know the scripture to lay hold of, we're more vulnerable to it. And Satan is a deceiver. And he doesn't control minds or thoughts, but he does predict behavior. And he's good at it. And through his meddling, we can step into certain thought patterns, and we can settle for lesser things in life than God intended. And I share this with you so that you can, as Ephesians 6.13 says, stand, and after you've done everything, stand. But I also share it with you because this battle is a very real thing among our church. Very real thing. I've experienced it in my life in the last few weeks in an intensity I've not experienced before. I've seen it in my family. I see it among the ministry team and their families. I see it among the church family. I would not be surprised that you right now where you're at can relate and to understand some of the dynamics here and realize, you know what, I'm in the midst of this battle too. As I said, we cannot talk about being a church on fire and expect that he's just going to sit back and let it happen. So I share it with you for you to be aware and to know the battle. Understand that it exists because the reality is you can't fight a battle you don't believe exists. We cannot fight a battle we do not believe exists. And far too many people underestimate Satan's activity while overestimating their own strength and ability to stand on their own. But it is in Jesus' name, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we stand. And as the Lord continues to fan the flame that he has started in our church as a church on fire, don't be surprised when opposition arises, when things get difficult, when there is trouble. Know it for what it is. It's already happening to a degree already. And it can seem like people drama. And we can say, you know what, I'm going to distance myself from that. I have a lack of peace about this, so I'm concerned. And I have a concern about my well-being, so I'm going to be more protective. Listen, that's isolation, fear, and victim mentality. Don't do it. Don't do it. As we step into obedience as a church, as we chase after God, as we partner with him, as we pray faithfully to him, asking him to do what only he can, there will be even more trouble. But take heart. He has overcome the world. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And the temptation will be to run. The temptation will be to back off. The temptation will be to compromise unity. The temptation will be to allow a D to push you into one of those three places and to think you can do it on your own. But I got to tell you, instead, stand in his power. Stand in his truth. Recognize it for what it is. Let's go back to what Paul said in, in Ephesians and a little couple other verses right ahead where we looked before. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In whose mighty power? His. His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Listen, my friends, we are in a very real battle. It is one where the outcomes ripple into eternity. So stand. And after you have done everything, stand. In his power. We're in a scenario of a move and counter-move reality. 
I like the way C.S. Lewis said it. He said it this way. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That's the reality of the spiritual battle. We're in a battle. In fact, here's what I want you to do. Just look around. Look left, look right, each of our locations. Just look around for just a moment. Look at the people around you. Okay? Of all the people you see right now, none of them are your enemy. Not one. Not even the one who has done the most painful, awful, worst, unfair thing to you. They are not your enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And as we close out our church on fire journey, as we consider the reality of the second gap, as we consider the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit and the reality of the battle, in this final week, I want to invite all of us to personally and prayerfully consider one simple question that I think positions us to take what we have looked at over the last nine weeks and start to live intentionally out of it. The question is simply this. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things that you are living for worth Christ dying for? The things you're spending your time, your talent, your treasure, are they worth Christ dying for? The rest of the book of Acts goes on to recount the advancement of the good news. Uh, and you can read it. I encourage you to read the rest of the book of Acts if you haven't yet done it. There's great examples of bridge building through missional journeys and missional investments. But it's the church being the church as they sent people on fire. And this second gap diagram that we have been looking at and studying, there is a reality that's reflected here. There is a reality based on the significance of the work. There is a reality of a battle. And I wonder if you're going to stand. And after everything you've done, stand in his power and in his might. Because the Lord is transforming us by his power to go, to build bridges, to be his hands and feet, to be his witnesses, his ambassadors, to unashamedly run full throttle in this life, loving and serving people with our hair on fire, if you've got it. I said that, yes. as we love and serve in his name. See, next week, we're going to start a four-week journey to understand how we go be love. You don't want to miss it. You do not want to miss it because we're digging deeper into the second gap reality and how we build those bridges. But this is the whole gospel, and it's the grid by which we as a church determine what we do and what we invest in. But what's very interesting for me, and this is the last thing I want to leave you with, it's very interesting to me that the people who are most critical of the church are often the people who are least involved in second gap work. I find that the people who have the most to say about what is and what isn't about the church are the ones who are most often least involved in second gap work. But when we engage in living as a saved people who are sent, that all changes. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we persevere through the trouble and we see him do the miraculous. And we are positioned as a church family then to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And listen, that is both worth living for and worth dying for. What are you living for that is worth Christ dying for? Let's take a moment and pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather as a church family. I thank you for technology to be able to do this differently this weekend. 
But Lord, I pray beyond what we do in this space that you would equip us, empower us, give us courage to live out your purpose and to go build bridges in your name, to be your witnesses. God, I realize that whenever any of us commit to you, whenever we surrender to you, we, we seek to live out of your, out of our identity in your son Jesus, that the enemy wants to mess with that. And I pray, Father, by your power that you provide protection. God, that you would give strength, that you would bind the enemy from interfering. But I pray that you would position us in the midst of that to live for things that are worth your son dying for. You did, just not, you did not just call us out and save us to be saved. You've called us out for your glory and you've given us purpose and mission. So may we be the church on fire, Father. May we continue to be faithful. May we continue to be sacrificial. May we hear you and may we run hard after you for your glory. I love you. I pray these things in the name of your Son and the name of our Savior. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.